Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. You're about to meet and get to know yet another creative woman whose career involves the big screen. Kate Hackett is not only a director, but an editor who happens to be an Emmy Award winner for her editing expertise on the Netflix documentary series, Cheer. It chronicles the high stakes cheerleaders face. She's also worked on the Emmy winning series, Last Chance You, which tells the stories of elite athletes with troubled pasts who look toward junior college football as a last resort to turn their lives around and achieve their dreams. There's also her work on the Sundance documentary, Half the Picture. It focuses on the dismal number of female directors currently working in Hollywood. As a director, Kate's art films for large screen concerts have been shown nationally and internationally at such venues as the Hollywood Bowl, the Apollo, and Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Kate's last project, Oleander, is a short film about a sexually active teenager who wages a social media war against her Christian abstinence program and the manipulation of the program's director and a filmmaker, both women, who join forces to suppress and undermine her effort. Oleander's crew, by the way, was 65% female. So let's meet and get to know Kate Hackett. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Kate, it strikes me that I have definitely interviewed a lot of female directors, which is so empowering and so wonderful. And so it's funny when I mentioned half the picture about the dismal number of female directors, which I am not disputing. But what's so heartening is that there's so many more of you broads. Yeah, half the picture was very inspiring for me to edit. The director is Amy Adrian, who's a fantastic director who I actually met at film school. So our collaboration goes back a while. And it was so exciting to me because going into editing the film, I knew there were female directors. I knew who I admired, specific female directors, but I didn't know about the breadth and scope of female directors out there working. And so just to hear different stories of women in the industry and how they got there and what their journeys were and what inspired them to be directors when they didn't have a lot of examples of people like them when they were growing up, I think it it was uh, very inspiring for me as a creative practitioner. But I'm also struck by the fact, and I assume I'm right about this, that there are not a lot of women film editors. Yes, that's the case. I think it's, I don't want to get the statistics messed up, but I feel, I think in But they suck. The statistics yeah, suck. Yeah. It's okay. about like 22, I think it's 22% of television editors are women. It's around there. It's between 20 and 30%. It is definitely not 50%. And the union as well, it's, it's I think around the 30% benchmark. So it's very low. It should be higher. And it's sort of shocking that in 2020, we still have these incredibly low numbers of women in the industry. When I think below the line jobs like editing, cinematography, composing in post, they sometimes don't get noticed as much with initiatives for change because they're not quite as visible. What does that expression mean, below the line? I think it's um, people who aren't the top of the budget. So the producer, the director, 
Ah, okay. Well, based on what we were just talking about, the lack of ubiquity of females in editing, how did you wind up being a film editor? Was that something you always aspired to? Talk about your past. I I think you find this backstory in so many creative women's careers that I, I had two extremely supportive parents who were very supportive of me going into the arts. My father's a theater director and my mother's a theater director as well. She, um, taught high school for many years and did the high school plays. So I grew up in a creative family, but I also think as a young woman, having a supportive father who sees you as a, uh, as a creative individual who, as a person, yes. And who believes that you could be, you could excel in the arts means a lot. And I actually also had a wonderfully supportive grandfather. My grandfather was a Marine and a career Marine, but he sort of loved underdog stories. And one of the stories that he loved was that the actress Ida Lupino was also a film director. And he would just say to me, oh, he would go, he would ask me like, are you going to be a lady general or are you going to be a lady director like Ida Lupino? So I think that's so rare that a woman has masculine role models who are very excited for them to lead. And I think for somebody of my grandfather's generation, like the greatest generation, it's really exceptional that he was like so excited by female leadership. So I think that really influenced me. I started being interested in filmmaking in general, I think by when I was in high school. So when I was in high school, I made short films with the resources of my high school, you know, with their video camera and and stuff like that. And then having two parents who were theater directors, I started doing plays in college, directing plays, and I acted in plays. And I started just feeling like I wanted to control everything in the play Uh, visually mm -hmm. (laughs) um, related to minutiae. I felt like I just want to see like just the hand of this person (laughs) or just like their eyeball. And and so I started realizing like I didn't want to be a theater director or an actor. I wanted to be a filmmaker. So that was sort of my journey. But I have to say like growing up in the 90s as a teenager and being a aspiring filmmaker in the early thousands, I was very inspired by Tarantino and P.T. Anderson and Lars von Trier and but there just weren't many women role models at all anywhere on screen and so you would like cling to anyone you found but I always felt that I would have to be an exception to enter the field because there just was not I think Sofia Coppola was one of the very few directors on sort of the, on, on my radar um, at that age that I was aware of. So you mentioned that you went to film school. Where'd you go? I went to UCLA for graduate school. And that was pretty seminal for you. You graduated and you said, I'm, I'm ready to take <laughs> the motion picture industry by storm. If I could put words in your mouth. Where I started experimenting with these plays and with making my own films was in college. And I actually went to college at the University of St. Andrews, which it's in Scotland and it has a historic relationship with the Edinburgh Festival. So I was able to access amazing actors as a college student, work with actors, 
there wasn't a formal film program at my university, but there was so much emphasis on this, you know, it's in, it, right next to this city that has such a legacy of amazing performance, amazing films. So, and that really got me ready. By the time I went to film school at UCLA, I had a, a real prepared and I had already directed. While I was at film school, I started turning more towards, I was always had had an interest in editing and knew that I liked it, but I had amazing mentors at film school. One was um, Nancy Richardson, who at the time was editing the first um, Twilight film, but who's edited a number of incredible films, including Stand and Deliver and Divergent. And then also another mentor was um, Curtis Clayton, who has edited several films for Gus Van Sant. He he edited Drugstore Cowboy, My Own Private Idaho. So um, the, the two of them were just really inspired me about the art of editing and the possibilities of the art of editing. So I started feeling like I would like to have a career where, where I could do both directing and editing. I got really excited about, like I said, just the art form, started watching the seminal films where, where editing really pushes the envelope in the films and, and got inspired there. What was it like when you graduated film school and you started to embark on your career? Were you comfortable or felt welcome by the males who were probably the ones doing most of the directing back in your day? You know, it's so weird because I was I was somewhat oblivious to gender any kind of well, any kind of like barriers for women in the industry. And I only started to notice them, to be honest, like later. When I first got out of film school, I which was what year? Which was 2008. So okay. it was, I actually officially graduated in 2009, but I started working in 08. So I was, it was the middle of the financial crisis. Everybody was, everybody was broke. And my male colleagues from film school were wonderful and supportive as well as my female colleagues. And we had a like group of people that worked together and somebody would be a DP on a commercial and they would hire their friends to be PAs and we'd all like get a paycheck. And so I was in that graduate school environment with these very supportive men who had been, you know, working with women for the past four years very closely and had just an environment where I was hired on small editing jobs, small little commercial jobs with, with my male colleagues. I would say when I started to notice the gender discrimination was when I actually entered the system. So I remember one of the first times I worked um, in a um, in a commercial environment at an editing house, and um, I was doing very well as an editor there. And but I had also been directing these art films for live concerts, multimedia concerts. That was part of my career, and um, this commercial house needed somebody to direct concert videos. And I said, I'd love to do it. I have all this experience. And the head of the company said, no, I need somebody like a young guy who can go out there, you know, like mm-hmm. a, like a guy. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I had another situation where I finished a screenplay that had an ensemble cast that had three women and one man. And I 
showed it to somebody who could help me get financing. And he said, like, so what is this like for lifetime? Why did you give it to me? Because he interpreted, I mean, nothing, Lifetime has had, you know, actually some wonderful shows like Unreal and, but, you know, nothing on Lifetime, but it was not that genre. It was a a drama. (laughs) Um, And so I think I experienced then these situations where I, could actively see a barrier to my hiring happening or my receiving financing. But it happened, like I said, it, it, was, it was when I got older and when the opportunities were more uh, exciting and more financially lucrative that I started to see the, the discrimination. You mean the stakes were higher? Yes. In other yeah. words, and we, yes. we're not going to fuck around. We want to make sure that we have the best of the best in a sense. And also we want a clubbiness of like, we want uh, the opportunity right, right. to go to people like us and a, a, a low confidence. I also, I can't tell you as an editor, how many times I had people ask me, can I edit action? And, you know, which is so strange when you look at some of the seminal, um, seminal action editing is by women. It's Sally Mankey, Quentin Tarantino's editor. You know, it's Thelma Schoonmacher, Scorsese's editor. It's Dee Dee Allen. It's bizarre because women have actually contributed many of the innovations in in action mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. editing to sort of the canon of filmmaking. But I would get asked that question. You know, I was in a situation once where um, I had directors bring the fight instructor into the cutting room to tell me how to cut the action scenes that he'd constructed because there was low confidence with my ability to somehow construct the action scene. Mm -hmm. So that just over and over. And of course, you don't know the things that are happening that you don't know about. Um, You know, I had another situation where I was potentially being hired for a show that was like about machines and engineering and they said documentary and they said, we need somebody who really knows about engineering. Um, And I said, well, I don't know a lot about engineering, but I just edited a documentary about a sustainable farm and I didn't know anything about that either. And, Mm -hmm. And like any good editor, I did my research and then I saw the slate of editors that were hired and they were all men. And um, I think there's this idea that a man would know more about engineering and how to present that in a documentary than a woman would, mm-hmm. which, you know, I highly doubt most <laughs> any editors in Hollywood know that much about engineering. Editors basically represent themselves, correct? You're an independent person. They, they, they reach out to you. You're not part of a, a, a company, correct? You can be if you're, if you work for like an ad agency, but you know, or they're editors who edit in-house, for example, if you, um, uh, you know, they're, they're editors that work for like Vice or something like that who are in-house, but I, I have always been independent. Independent, and, a yeah. freelancer. Yeah. And that's quite, I would say that's the norm, especially for the larger scripted and documentary projects. So did you feel like you died and went to heaven when you won an Emmy for Cheer? I did. And and actually- And what year was that? That was this year. That was actually 2020. It was the last Emmy. Oh my God, how about the press there? Okay. Mm -hmm. But I should say, actually, before that, on the topic of gender, I was so 
lucky to be hired for this show, Last Chance You, the Netflix show about football players. And that was a male director and producer team who thought I would be great at editing football and football games and stories about football players and stories about men in their relationships with other men, their relationships with So you were first choice. We want her. You were a first draft pick. They exactly. They reached out to me and and thought I would be great at cutting it. And I mean, that was like a godsend for me because I I I am really good at cutting football and and football games and stories about men and and to have employers just not look at my gender for something so masculine mm-hmm, um, was mm-hmm. just so empowering. And that company is the company that. I also edited Cheer with, so it was an extension of my work with with that company, One Potato. The director is named Greg Whiteley. I had already already loved his work because I'd seen the documentary Mitt, which he directed about Mitt Romney's presidential campaign, which is an amazing, like fly on the wall verite documentary. And so it, it already was filmmakers I respected and I respected their style and was very much drawn to their filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Was it a goal of yours to marry editing with directing? Was that something that you always pursued? I've always been doing both since the beginning. When I first started off, I started working with a composer named Laura Cartman, who was making video backdrops to accompany a new opera that she'd written at the at the Hollywood Bowl that was going to be presented at the Hollywood Bowl. And she gave me an opportunity very early to create these video backdrops that would accompany the live performance. So I I was able to get hired as a director very young for these experimental art pieces. And so I've always had a component of directing that sort of like dovetailed with my editing career. I also did some commercial work as a director. So it's always been there, although I would say the editing has taken more, much more of my time. But it's, it's, there's always been some directing mixed in. So let's move over to Oleander, which is a really unusual short film, I think. Did you give birth to that? Was I that did. all your idea? You wrote the script? You came up with the whole premise? Yes. Yes. Why? How did, well, that, ha- how did, how did that happen? So Oleander, the short film is based on a feature film that I wrote and which was a finalist for the American Zoetrope screenplay contest. And what really interested me was looking at sort of the structures of power in our society, religion and the media being two of the largest structures of power and seeing how they can um, be complicit in denying individual agency or individual voice, especially to young people who are developing in, in the world. So as you mentioned, the, the short film, it's about a teenage YouTuber who very much embraces her own sexuality, who is rebelling against the fact that she's in this Christian abstinence program and is asked by the program to apologize on camera for making fun of, of their program in her um, YouTube channel. 
And that idea came for me from, first of all, from my own experience. I went to Catholic school. I had abstinence-based sex education. And as a young person, that led for me to like such a shame and guilt about my own sexuality that it became difficult to reconcile for many years and actually put me into situations in relationships um, where I was very vulnerable to, um, uh, you know, abuse, domestic violence, all sorts of issues that come from from having this low You mean in your, in your social situations in dating, you mean? Yes, exactly. So really, that, yes, that I, you know, I think because I was taught that all sexuality was evil, bad, and so I just felt that anything, that everything was bad. So as a result, if I was being treated badly, like that was okay because what I was doing was bad. And you know, I think there's statistics that are related to this that young young people who experience abstinence only education can be much more likely to be in domestically violent situations later or um, sexually violent situations. So I certainly experienced that in in my own life, but I also I was interested in that culture and the denial of sort of a voice or agency of young women or the low self-worth that can happen at that time. But I also was very interested in the media and how we might deny or manipulate somebody's voice or, or uh, affect their self-worth. And as a young editor, I did like dip my toe in the reality television world and saw how subjects can be manipulated, their voice can be taken away, they can be turned into the butt of a joke. So I felt like if we're going to hold religion accountable for this, for denying agency, for taking away voice, we also need to hold media (laughs) accountable for doing these same things. I, I wanted to look at institutional accountability across the board for the things that we do to sort of suppress young people's voice and agency. Well, editing is an extremely powerful tool in terms of what you or I think the other person needs to hear or should hear. And it can be extremely scary, as we can certainly see in our political lives today, this picking and choosing of what of, of people's truths, so to speak how you can wield the power as an as an editor. Yes, and I think one of one of the things that I've taken away from my religious upbringing which I really value because I should say that I'm not looking to do like an attack piece I'm looking to do it like um uh to really look at all the sort of gray areas of the situation and and one of the things that I deeply value is the idea of a sense of moral integrity and moral responsibility and I think that those of us who work in the media have a moral responsibility to represent the most vulnerable of us in a way that depicts them accurately. We have a responsibility to not twist the truth. You know, we can paint a portrait and that portrait can be stylized, but we have a, tr- a true responsibility to present facts. And, you know, I've seen that erode in our society over the past few years, and I find it to be extremely concerning. Well, it's such blatant manipulation on the part of 
maybe more so the filmmaker than the director of this abstinence program, who, from my take on this, started out by saying to Oleander, I need you to apologize. You're ruining my business because she refers to her with the C word. And this teenager who's <laughs> kind of full of herself and uh, you're just not going to push her around. Although the irony is that she's in this program and you don't quite know her backstory. She found herself there, obviously, I'm assuming, because her parents put her there. Yes. It's the manipulation that's mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. unsettling, yes. particularly of the filmmaker and the power as we're talking about in terms of editing and picking and choosing, she's used. She's completely used. That's because for me as a filmmaker, I'm, I'm the most interested in like where my moral responsibility lies and I'm not the head of a, an abstinence program. So I think I can really look at that with empathy and think about the leader of, of a program like that. What would she be doing, why would she think that she was protecting people? And it might, somebody might go into that with quite noble goals. You know, they might think that they were helping people. Whereas I think for myself as a media maker, I hold myself quite accountable for how I treat my subjects. What are the jobs that I take? Do I take jobs that contribute to the erosion of our stereotyping. um, Mm -hmm. Yes. To stereotyping. And I think many people who think of themselves as good people in the media, unfortunately can be complicit in, in stereotyping, in erosion of the voice and the agency and, and the rights of individuals. So I think I'm much more interested in holding that accountable because I I don't think it gets held accountable enough. I'm struck by the fact that Oleander is a short film. I'm very involved in a local film festival and they, and their roster includes many short films, but why did you make this a short film? And what what are the venues to show this movie? Well, I've been showing the the film on the short film festival circuit, and then it will be available online. So hopefully it can reach an audience in in that capacity. I think also I wanted, because I wrote the screenplay for the feature film, I wanted to articulate my vision for the feature film, articulate the themes and the characters and the um, emotional landscape that the feature film would be wrestling with while still having it in a self-contained short that hopefully leaves a quite a few questions unanswered um, that make you want to see the answer to those questions or how they're followed up. Do you see Oleander as expanding in terms of a a full-length feature? Yes, yes. So I've written the feature script and I am now in the search for the right producer to team up with to make the feature film script, but I absolutely see it as a feature film script. And the feature film script is an ensemble for four characters. There's a teenage girl that's rebelling against an abstinence program. There's the head, the like the charismatic female head of the abstinence program. There's a filmmaker who's documenting the process, just like in the short. And then there's also a male pastor who's dealing with his own sort of issues of self-worth and moral integrity. And the fact that this young woman is rebelling against this organization brings all of these people's lives to a head in sort of like a potboiler situation of 
tension that becomes very difficult for everybody. So it's, it's the, the film is a drama, but it becomes sort of like film noir adjacent or psychological thriller adjacent while the tension on everybody becomes so extreme within this sort of like pot boiler situation that it becomes, you know, actually frightening for the protagonist, Oleander. Why did you incorporate a filmmaker in this? What was the what was the role of the filmmaker? One of the inspirations for this film for me was the 70s film network because it because it shows different people working in the media and what their feelings are related to how the media should be used but how then that then interacts with other aspects of society, like political engagement, like how we talk about vulnerable people. So I think I was looking at a, trying to find sort of this like um, enclosed environment where we could see religion in the media intersect as represented by different characters. I think that's why Network inspired me because each character kind of represents an approach. So you see um, each of these characters who have some relationship to either religion or the media, they all have relationships to both in some way. And then we see how they, you know, with their very different approaches and needs and desires, how those sort of like interact against each other. So yeah, I think for me it was it was very much wanting to look at those two components of society and and in within an enclosed situation. Are you working on something currently? I'm currently editing a documentary which I I can't talk about yet, but it's um got a lot of amazing archival footage starting off in the 1970s going through the early thousands. I've said this many many times. To me, no one can minimize the power, for example, of the documentary to educate, expose, maybe change some minds. I, I'm so grateful for that. I'm, yes, and it's wonderful to watch features and maybe do a little escapism or whatever, but documentaries are just so powerful in my book. I agree. Documentaries were something I came to a little bit later in life. I didn't really grow up watching the seminal documentaries, the, you know, the famous documentaries. I remember the first documentary I really clearly remember seeing was, I think I was about 20 when Buena Vista Social Club came out and going to the, that was a documentary that a lot of people went to the theater to see, which, you know, and everybody had to see it. And I think that was the first time that documentary films came on my radar and the and the power of them. Um, so it's been a learning experience for me in terms of getting to watch the great documentaries, the canon documentaries. And, and I feel really lucky myself to have gotten to work with great documentary filmmakers because I think they, like you said, they do have the power to change society in a much more direct way. I and think positive that, way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think scripted films can also very much change society and, and change attitudes and, very powerful ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you have a bunch of irons in the fire. I do. Yes. No, that's wonderful. Yes. Uh huh. As always, I have you know something I'm editing, something I'm directing, and and sort of yeah. I think it's uh, the I guess the conventional wisdom is always to have a few irons in the fire. So I do. So my last question to you: If I was your fairy godmother, what would you ask of me? 
Well, I think I'd probably ask for funding for my uh, <laughs> funding for this feature so I can make it. <laughs> I'm so excited to make it and and to expand on the themes and to, you know, I feel like there's a whole world in my head that I haven't been able to get out into the world yet. You know, like these characters live in your head until you can get them into to the real world somehow. The Oleander so. characters, you mean. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Well, Kate Hackett, it's really great to meet and get to know you. So great to meet you too. I think it's terrific that you've got a lot of irons in the fire and you'll keep us abreast of what's going on in your professional life. I will. Thank you so much. No, totally my pleasure. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.